where we gather in continuation of corporate worship, not to be entertained or even merely informed, but to hear from God as speaking through man, to encounter the presence and the glory of God. And it's in the glory of Christ being lifted high that his people are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so would you continue on with corporate worship with me in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1, this is God's word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted." This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your word, and we would pray that during this time that you would speak to your people who are gathered this morning around it, and that we would behold your glory, God, that we would worship our way through this sermon. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I used to love track. Especially in in, uh, grade school when track basically consisted of one track meet per year and the races were 50-yard dashes. Loved that one time a year. We all got to skip out of school and go run around the track or 50 yards around the track. I started really to dislike track when it got tougher. And when I knew I could be playing baseball instead and I'm running around in circles and I just had to keep running, like that's track. You just, you just keep running. And so when it got tougher and it went beyond a 50-yard dash, I, I was kind of out. <laughs> like, when does, when does baseball start? When do I get to go to that? And, and maybe you're not too different than that. When we looked at the examples of faith in chapter 11, now I'm in with Abraham. I guess go. Let's go. Let's go do this thing. I'm in with Samson. Right? He wasn't a great guy, but he could push down walls even at the end. I'm I'm in with with closing the mouths of lions and putting foreign armies to flight. But then we kind of took a turn last week and and things started going the other direction. Where sometimes you get devoured and the 50-yard dash turns into a marathon and all of a sudden it's a lot tougher. And maybe you're not so much in on the life of faith anymore as you thought you were at the beginning. And chapter 12 begins to start encouraging us. And the main encouragement from the first three verses is to run with endurance. Looking to Jesus, considering him and his life and his work. And in this encouragement to run with endurance, the author, I think, gives two obstacles to running with endurance and two great encouragements. And so as chapter 12 begins, this is where all of chapter 11 was leading. Like, this is where it's coming to bear. Like, we have all these examples, and now he's saying, here's what we're going to do with them. And so what he does in the first couple verses of chapter 12 is that he pictures the life of faith as a race that is set before us. Paul does this too. He says this in 2 Timothy 4, 7. He says, I finished the race. He's picturing the Christian life, even his life and ministry, as a race. And before we even start about start talking about running with endurance and running in this race, I think it's worth asking whether we're even in the race. 
And we've just gone through chapter 11, this great chapter of faith, where those who by faith, by faith, by faith, repeated over and over again in chapter 11. And the question is for us is that are we in the race? Do we have faith? Any of the things that characterize those people who had faith in chapter 11 characterize us in our lives. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. And so before we even talk about running this race, the race of faith, the life of faith, we need to ask, are we in the faith? If not, we'd encourage you, exhort you to believe and start running. But for those who have faith, there's a race that's set before you. And it's as if God is kind of the, the master of the games. Like he sets the course, he puts it all out there, and we're the runners. And so he, he gets everything ready, and we get on the course and start running. And so whatever is set before us is the course. That's the race. And we don't get to decide that or determine that. You saw in chapter 11, some of their course was characterized by victory. Putting foreign armies to flight, closing the mouths of lions. Some of their life and their course, their race was characterized by defeat. Being overrun by armies, suffering, losing their head. Most of us, it's going to be a little bit of both. But it's not for runners to alter the course. It's not for runners to even complain about the race. What's for runners is to run the race that's been set before them. Love Luther in his kind of classic style. He says this, he says, God loves the runner. Not the questioner or the disputer. Run the race that is set before you. Don't question it. We're not disputing it. We just we trust that the Lord is good. Whatever the race is set before, if it's characterized more by victory, characterized more by defeat, we're going to do this with the strength that God provides. And so how does he encourage us in this race? Those who are of the faith are those who just trust God and get running. They trust and obey. That's the life of faith. And so when we look at this race, we know and have to think about inherently in the word race, especially here, is not the idea so much about competition. That's normally what comes to our mind when we think about a race. But it's about giving our all. Run here is the main encouragement. It's the main exhortation. All else around this passage is supported by or depends upon that main command. To run with endurance. It's not about moving as quickly as you can, or beating someone who's beside you, it's about moving always and only in the same direction. It's about running, keeping going. The goal is not winning so much as it is finishing. This is why the encouragement is run with endurance. We're to run, but we're to do it with endurance. And I think the danger and the temptation that the original audience was facing, that we face, is to lose intensity in this race is to even think about and consider or even drop out of the race completely because things are tough. The audience in, in this book, they were, they were facing a lot of suffering. Some of them would, would not want to meet together corporately because if they did, their homes would be plundered or they'd be labeled as one of those guys who now we can no longer associate with in the popular culture because they're one of those weird people to follow after Jesus. Some of them would have been disowned and pushed out of their own social circles or even their families. Maybe that's true for some of us as well. And so on the table for us in the middle of this race is maybe we should just drop out altogether. There are tough realities on the course. 
normal life sufferings, the harshness of what could come with following Christ. It might mean that we're a chew toy for lions, that we get burned up by fire, that we lose our heads. All of those things are on the table. We don't know the course that's for us, but the encouragement is to run. And so we do need encouragement. And so encouragement in this race, the author, I think, before he encourages us strongly, gives two obstacles to running the race that's set before us with endurance. So he says in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Now, I don't keep up with fashion trends, as you probably knew already. When I was in high school and in middle school, one of the big things for us then were breakaway pants. Do you remember these? They had snaps all the way up and down. And we thought those were awesome. So what you could do is you could warm up for a basketball game, and then you just pull them off with one swipe, and you got your basketball shorts on, and you're ready to go. And that's what the author is picturing here. It's like you're, you're doing what you need to do to trim everything off to get ready for the race. So you've got whatever you've got on, you need to you know, rip it all away and get what trimmed and ready for whatever's before you. Excess weight in any capacity, warm-up shirts, pants, whatever, they got to go. Those aren't good for a race, and so you got to get rid of them. He says, lay aside every weight. That is all that's a hindrance. All that holds back, all that constricts movement in any sort of direction. Like you want to get rid of that stuff if you're going to run with endurance. The hard thing about this is that some of these aren't even noticed until you start running. Right? You don't notice how heavy your shoes are until you get going. And then you're like, man, I should get some different shoes. Or you don't notice how heavy you are until you get running. Like, I should do something about my own weight. It's constricting my movement. Some of these things might not be noticed until you begin to run. But here's the thing about these, these weights, is that whatever these hindrances are, like, they might be completely okay. Like, Christians might be completely free to do something that might be a weight for them. These things could be completely, and most of the time are, morally neutral. They have no value one way or another. They're not inherently sinful. They're not inherently good. But they can still be weights. You think about money. Money is neutral. You can have money, spend money, all those things. You can even have money for the glory of God, and many do, praise God. But can easily, as a morally neutral thing, take over our hearts. This is why there are several warnings about money in the Scripture. Now, be careful. It's not money that's the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. Money is a morally neutral thing, but it can easily take over. How about sports? Do we even need to go here? Like There are temples all over our world that have 60 100,000 fans each Saturday and Sunday at them where people are worshiping? All right, football or any kind of sport, those are morally neutral. You can love them and be involved with them and care about them in deep ways and be a Christian and love the Lord. But it's not hard for them to start taking on weight in our lives. Right? There are a lot of people that show a lot more emotion in some sort of sporting event than they ever show toward the things of the Lord. It's weight. What about entertainment? Pick on HGTV, seems like an easy one to take a shot at, so let's go for it. HGTV can, can be a really good thing. You can get design ideas, like here how you can make life simpler, easier. You can do things that are cheap. They can figure out all sorts of stuff. But it can also start to put a picture in your mind of here's what life should look like. And all of a sudden, a morally neutral thing has taken over capacity in your life that it shouldn't have. It's weight. Kids, how about video games? Morally neutral. 
But all of a sudden, we can start giving time and our hearts toward things that aren't real. And our hearts are being swept away. In your marriage, my guess is that morally neutral things are causing issues. Things like the toilet paper roll, that hasn't been something for us specifically, but it's something for people. For us, it's more punctuality. Like, punctuality didn't seem like a morally neutral thing to me. It is more morally neutral than, than I would believe. For some people, it's completely, it doesn't matter. You can show up whenever. No, it's like, to me, it was like, you show up on time. You, you, are, you are required to show up on time. God has had to work holiness out in me in that category in marriage. Or parking spots, right? It doesn't matter where you park. But all of a sudden, we take these things that are morally neutral, and they become bigger things. They become weights to us, and they start eating us alive. Kids, maybe it's grades in your life. Morally neutral, it's good to do well, but it could be eating you alive. Matt Chandler said this, there are things in your life that are morally neutral that will absolutely destroy you if you're not careful. And just because we as Christians are free to do something and it's not inherently sinful in and of itself doesn't mean we should do it because it could be adding weight. And weight is not good if you're going to run a race with endurance. Think about it. If you have this morally neutral weight on you already, how are you going to deal with the weight of suffering that comes with just normal life? Or even... Your course might be harder than you think as you go ahead. How are you going to deal with what, what else is to come in this race? Running with endurance is in danger. Intensity is in danger of declining when we, you have this extra weight on you. Even the weight of the morally neutral, all of a sudden dropping out gets on the table. I think with some honest self-assessment, many of us will likely find that we're being eaten alive by the morally neutral things that we're completely free as Christians to do. One commentator said this, Far too many Christians try to run the race of Christian pilgrimage while carrying all kinds of heavy baggage, anxieties about trivial concerns, ambitions to use the gospel as a means of self-advancement, resentments at other people, a secret greed for bodily appetites, and so on. Does this describe us? Amen. If we're honest in our assessment, morally neutral things have captured our hearts more than we'd like to let on. We're more excited and thrilled by morally neutral things than we are by the things of God. And what's actually happened is that morally neutral things that we're completely free to partake of are deadening our hearts toward God. Likely, you're being greatly hindered in your life and running the race with endurance with things that don't matter. And these things are completely okay with a slow and subtle takeover of our hearts. A little weight at a time. A little more weight next time. A little more weight. And we just get more and more slowed down. And what is the author encouraging? Lay aside those weights. Every weight. All that hinders. All the weights down. All that constrains your movement. All that's making it hard to run with endurance. Even if they're morally neutral and not inherently sinful. He says, lay those things aside. Not because we're not free to do them. Not because they're inherently sinful. But because they're hindering the race. You need to run with endurance. And so think in your life, what, what excess weight am I carrying? What do I have on me that's, that's, that's hindering my movements? that I need to get rid of? And the question is, well, how do I know what those things are? 
And here's where it varies greatly from person to person, so I don't think that there's a blanket way I can say, here's how you know. I would say take it before the Lord. Take it before community. Start asking these questions. What are the things that have captured my heart? That are pulling it aside. There are weight into following after Christ. But here's some help. One author says, But whatever specific form the weight may take, it will have a tendency to divert us from or drain us of energy for serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And the litmus test of all things is whether they draw us beyond themselves to more love for Christ or whether, like weights, they hold us back. There are some things in your life that need to go because they are hindering you or draining you energy from serving Jesus. That they're not actually doing what they're intended to do. Food is meant to, intended to push you beyond the, the goodness of all the flavors and taste to, to someone who has been good enough to create these things and give them to us. But often they're not and we're enjoying the thing in and of itself without letting it push us forward and it's, so it's becoming a weight and adding weight. The litmus test is whether they are drawing us beyond themselves to, serve, to more love for Christ or whether, like weights, they hold us back. Lay aside weight that holds back. Whatever's holding back love and service of the Lord Jesus Christ, those are the things we need to lay aside. We also need to lay aside another obstacle. He gives it again at the end of verse 1. We're laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Perhaps out of the two obstacles, this is the more obvious, right? We're not supposed to keep on sinning. And so we'll spend a little bit less time here because it's a little bit more obvious. But sin is the heaviest weight in the race that we're to run with endurance, undoubtedly. Uh, What sin? Well, every sin. All sin. Your sinful heart, your sinful nature, its very presence in you, it clings so closely. The idea is that it's entangling you. It, It trips you up easily. I think of an obstacle course, right? Got no problems, you're running around the cones, got it there. You run through the little tube thing, fine there. Then you get to the tires. And it's like one, two, three, boom, you're falling down. Like that's what it's talking about, sin does. It's that kind of tripping up. It's like you go through that and you can make it through, but it's easy to trip and fall and stumble. That's what it's talking about. It's also the idea of of a hurdle. You're running the race and someone just slips a hurdle out there. It's a lot harder to run with endurance. With every couple steps, you gotta jump over something new. There's all sorts of great videos out there of hurdle fails. Check them out after you're done. It's like, there's these people, and this, this could be like a snapshot of our life. Run, fall over the hurdle, get back up, go to the next one, fall over again. And that's what sin is doing in our lives. That's how it's working in us. It's tripping us up. It easily is entangling us on a race we're to run with endurance. It's hurting us. It's slowing us down. It's complicating all of the race that we're meant to run. And the Bible is really, really clear on what Christians are to do with sin. They're to crucify it. Colossians 3, 5 says, put it to death. Romans 8, 13 says, you need to be putting to death the things of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. Colossians 5, 24 says, those who are in Christ are those who have crucified the flesh. It's been done away with. You put it to death. You don't get used to it. And it's like, well, I guess this is what it's like to run. No, you you don't do that. You don't endure it and say like this, I'm just going to bear down and go for it. No, you don't do any of those things. You kill it. You get rid of it. You cut and run. That's what we do with sin. Some of us aren't making progress in the race because we're being so impeded by sin. Things that aren't morally neutral at all. Things that are inherently sinful and evil before the Lord. 
our sharp words that we have for other people, coming from a heart that's sinful and angry, our prideful anxiety that thinks that we can control things. And because we can't control things and we have more anxiety heaped upon us, our bitterness, bitterness that we're holding on to toward others is coming from a heart that doesn't love our selfish attitudes. Wait, wait, wait. They're impeding us as we're trying to run this race with endurance. And because our sin is famously invisible to us, we're going to need God's word in front of us as a mirror to show us all these things. Where are the obstacles? Where is their sin? Hold up God's word in front of you and it will show you. Put God's people around you and if there's some intentionality there, they will help you in this, not only to point these things out, but help you walk in a way that would be with more endurance. Remember what the author said in chapter 3, verse 12. He said to The body, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And here's what you're to do about it. Exhort one another. Now all of a sudden, 3.12 has implications for this race that's set before each of us that we're to run with endurance. We're going to need one another because we have something that's impeding our movement. It's called sin and we need each other to take care because we have evil, unbelieving hearts and we need to be exhorted so that we can run in a way that would honor and glorify God that would actually endure to the end. So here are the two obstacles. Now that we're aware of the two obstacles and that we're supposed to lay them aside, the author gives us two encouragements. So it's not enough. It wouldn't be enough if the author just gave us, here's two obstacles, good luck dealing with them. The author gives us encouragements as well. For instance, if we just had the obstacles, we have no motivation for continuing the run. We just know that we're not supposed to do these things, lay these things aside. But why am I supposed to keep running? But the author gives us more The beginning of verse 1, if you go back up, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us then do these things. So here's one motivational factor that goes all the way down to the heart motivations for running this race, for laying aside weight that that would hinder our movement, that laying aside sin that so easily entangles. One of them is that we're surrounded by, by a great cloud of witnesses. This is the cloud of, of all these chapter 11 saints that have come before us and have persevered by faith. Their surrounding us is a lot more of surrounding by, by just witnessing what's going on or even by just being cheerleaders. Their examples are encouraging us onward because they are those who have made it and have said, by faith, we did these things. Their examples are encouraging us on. It reminded me of a song, kind of a modern hymn, and it says this, So spirit come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. Here's this great cloud of witnesses. They're retelling the triumphs of God's grace in their lives. We are to see their examples and know that they made it, that they were looking forward to something better and were to take heart because of that and then lay aside other things. We hear their calls. And here, chapter 11, is a group of faithful men and women who made it to the end by faith. They trusted God. They looked forward to His promises. They were counting on and depending upon Him to come through for them in the end. I would say that they're very unlike most fans that you will see at any sporting event. You know these fans. They're often the loudest and the least encouraging. They're the coach in the stands. They have all the strategy figured out. You know, like, 
They know what play should be next. They know what you shouldn't do. And, and they're often the loudest. Like, I, I'm amazed at how many offensive coordinators are unhired in the stands. And all of their ideas, I'm sure, are really great. And I'm sure when they yell them out to the coaches and players that they are greatly encouraged. Since they've never played it down in their life. Often that's what we think of. It's these, these fans in the game, they're just yelling things out. And they don't know. They haven't been there. They don't even know what it's like. And so they're still yelling things out. They think they can handle these things. And they're not encouraging at all. But here's chapter 11. They, they ran the race. Right? They, they went through it. And they're not even saying, look at me. They're saying, look at what God has done. He prepared something for us. That's what we were looking for. And we're just retelling. We want to retell the triumphs of, of his grace. That's encouraging. Someone who's actually played, someone who's actually ran the race, and then can come back and say, you can make this. That's what's encouraging. And that's what chapter 11 is. It's full of these kind of people. One, people who know, who've been there, and their testimony is still standing in chapter 11 saying, look at what God has done. We made it to the end because we are trusting in him. And so chapter 11 is this great cloud of witnesses that encourages us to lay aside every weight and every sin. But that's not the only encouragement we're given for the race. Right? Chapter 11 was, was only, in total, that was the penultimate example of faith. It was building and building and building. And we're just left waiting like, what are we doing here? So, so when we went through chapter 11, did you think, like, we've got a whole chapter of faith examples and we didn't say anything about Jesus. Christ wasn't mentioned there. Like, where is he? Wasn't he better than Samson? Wasn't he better than all these other people? Where is Jesus in chapter 11? Well, the author didn't forget about the ultimate example of faith. Indeed, he built all of them up until here where we see it. What are we to do as we run this race? We're to run it with endurance. Verse 2, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Verse 1, is, it's got some heavy things to it, right? There's a couple obstacles we need to get rid of, weight and, and sin. We have this great cloud of witnesses. It's a, it's a heavy encouragement. Here's a whole chapter of people who are showing us what faith is like in a hard life. That, that's heavy stuff. But we're not to fix our eyes there. We're, we're not to stay there. We're not to focus in on the weight. We're not to focus in on the sin. We're not even to focus in on these great examples and hear their stories over and over and over again. Where are we to look? Where are we to fix our eyes? He says, look to Jesus. It's easy to get bogged down in the weight. Don't do it. Don't do it in your home group. Talk about the weight and talk about the weight and the glory of Jesus. It's easy to get bogged down in sin. It's easy to even fix our eyes on these faithful examples. It's fun to look at them. But those aren't to fill our gaze. We're we're to fill our sight to look to one and his name is Jesus. Christians are to fix their eyes on him because we're not made to run with endurance looking at our weight and looking at our sin. We're made to run with endurance by looking to our Savior, by looking to Christ himself. The author doesn't say, here's two obstacles and remember the witnesses and then just gut it out. You can do it, they did it. He says, look to Jesus. Jesus is the object of our gaze and this looking on him is a looking in reliance upon Jesus for strength, for motivation, for endurance. How am I going to make it? He's the reason I'm going to make it. As you run, we need to think like, where am I looking? Where are my eyes fixed? What am I setting my gaze on? All the other things that are going to motivate us to run this race with endurance are going to dry up. 
But here we have Jesus set before us, and we're looking to him. And because he lives forevermore, motivation from him, strength from him, endurance from him, encouragement from him never ceases. So what about Jesus gives us encouragement and support and motivation and endurance to keep running? Well, the author points us to his, his personhood, who he is, and to his work, what he has done. So we read, we're looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So Jesus isn't just another example of faith. He's that, but he's also much more than that. He is the founder, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. That's what he is. He's the one who goes into enemy territory and makes a way. So have you, have you seen the, the series Band of Brothers or read the book? There's this great scene towards the end after the Battle of Bastogne, the Battle of the Bulge, where they're, they're tasked with taking a city, the, the town of Foy. And here is they're, they're taking their assault on Foy. They have a problem, like Easy Company, which is the story is kind of surrounding them, is separated from Item Company. And in order to take the town, they have to get linked up, and they've been separated. And so now what are we going to do? Because what's the, what's the problem is we're, we're not going to be able to move forward. We're not going to be able to advance unless we figure this thing out. And yet we have no communication with them. And they're over there somewhere, but we've we got to figure out how to link up with them. And the only feasible thing to do is for someone to actually go over there to them. But to go over to the other company, to go hook up with item company, is to run across hostile, enemy-captured territory. And so this is known, and, and if you know this character, it's, it's pretty great in the movies. But Captain Ronald Spears, here's the news. And he just takes off. He just starts running right through the middle of enemy territory, surrounded by Germans being shot at from all around to go and connect to the other company so that they can continue their advance. And the voiceover as this scene is playing was, is just saying stuff like, it wasn't just so astounding that he went through enemy territory and hooked up with them, but he also he came back, all the way back through enemy territory that's the kind of pioneer that we're talking about. That's the kind of captain and founder that we're talking about. Jesus is the founder, the pioneer of our faith. He's the one who goes through unchartered, enemy-held territory, all the way through enemy-held ground, and makes a way where there isn't a way. And then he comes back so that he can hook us up with it, so that he can take us along with him. He's the pioneer, the founder of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith, so much so that he doesn't just make a way, but he himself is the way. So he is uniquely qualified as the founder and perfecter to be also the sustainer of our faith. He is uniquely qualified to be worthy of looking to over and over and over again for motivation to run this race with endurance. We're to look to him because he's the founder and the perfecter. He is making a way. He has made a way. He is the way. We're to look to him. But it's not just his personhood as the founder and pioneer and perfecter of our faith, but we're also to look to his work. So we're looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who what? For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're to look toward the work of Jesus Crucifixion, as you likely know, was a painful death. It was also a shameful one. Like if you wanted someone to know that they are utterly defeated and despised by the world, you put them on a cross. If you wanted them to, people to know for all time that they were the loser and that someone else was the winner, you put them on the cross. And this is what happened to Jesus. He was 
hung on a cross. He was crucified. This is for the lowest of the low. This is the worst sort of punishment you could endure, or you could put someone under to kill them. The Jews knew this, right? They said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. They knew someone who hangs like that is cursed by God. This is one of the worst deaths you can face. And I think that there's more pain and shame in that than we even know. We get that because we hear Jesus cry from that cross. And what does he cry? Not my arms, my arms. Not my legs, my legs, my head, this crown of thorns. Doesn't say, my lungs, my lungs, I'm, I'm, they're collapsing, I can't even lift myself up to breathe. What does he say? He says, my God, my God. Jesus says, my God, my God, as he takes on the sin of the world, as he faces the forsaking of the Father, as he takes the shame, and sin, wrath that sinners deserved. And he didn't just hang on a cross passively receiving death. Listen to what it says here. That for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He actively persevered on the cross. And he says how he does this. He does this by despising the shame. By casting it aside. Whatever the world associated with the cross, he valued it differently. One commentator says, but this disgrace Jesus disregarded as something not worthy to be taken into account when it was a question of his obedience to the will of God. Jesus loved his Father. He came to do the Father's will. He says, my bread is to do what the Father wants me to do. And he knows his Father to be good. And so he knows that this is going to include a cross, but my Father is good. And so I don't care what kind of shame and all this other stuff that's associated with it. I'm going to do this because I love my Father. If this looks bad, if this seems shameful, if I'm despised and rejected, thy will be done. But there was also joy set before him. Jesus came to do God's will. He knew this included a cross. But what was the will of the Father? Before creation, God in the fullness of the Trinity had purposed to dwell with man in a place without sin, in a place that was glorious, where God in his fullness could share his love, his grace, his mercy with his creation and that they would reciprocate it back to him perfectly. A place where man would worship God in spirit and in truth. This is what God purposed. But he also knew of the fall. And it didn't take long for the, the intent, the purpose of God to be interrupted by sin. As Adam and Eve in the garden rejected God's word, rebelled against him and decided on their own way. And now death has spread to all men because all have sinned. We have taken the same course. We've given God the stiff arm. But God had purposed that God would dwell with man. And so now what do we require? We require salvation. We require rescue for this to happen. There's only one way for sinful humanity to be reconciled to a holy God. There's only one way for the wrath of God to be taken out or propitiated, to be turned away from upon fallen creatures. There's only one way. There's only one way for the penalty of sin to be paid, for the power of sin to be broken. There's only one way. Jesus came to fulfill the Father's will. 
And his will, his purpose was of redeeming and saving a people for his glory and their eternal good. This was what Jesus came to do. The joy that was set before him in fulfilling the Father's will was gaining a people. Was reconciling sinful man to holy God. He didn't come merely to make people savable. He came to get a people. One says this, that since salvation had been purposed, it was necessary to secure the salvation through a satisfaction that could be rendered only through substitutionary sacrifice and blood-bought redemption. God purposed to redeem and to get a pure and spotless bride, and through the person and work of Jesus, God gets his girl. And so we see His result is in the end of verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, having delivered the death blow to Satan and sin and death. Here we have one who has secured salvation and now sits down. All those who place their faith in Jesus can know that their salvation is secure. Because he is sitting right now. He he has finished his work. He has secured salvation for those who have placed their faith in him. He doesn't need to do more. He sits down at the right hand of God. His session or his being seated at the right hand of God is a guarantee of the reward for those who would place their faith in him. His seating, his being seated at the right hand of God is a supreme example of those with faith. What they have, they might endure suffering, but the end of it is glory. We will reign with him, the scripture tells us. And so here in the person and work of Jesus, we have the greatest stimulus, the greatest motivational factor there is for running with endurance. It's the person and work of Jesus. And so we're given this last exhortation in verse 3. Consider him. Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. As a pioneer and perfecter of our faith, Jesus stayed the course without fail the entire way. And he faced a much tougher race than any of us will ever face. And so we get to look to him, consider him, what he has done in our lives. And know that his endurance, his making it through the course secures our endurance if we're looking to him. If we're considering him. He's seated knowing that the, the full weight of what we face in our lives, he, he knows it. He, he's seated, knowing the, the, the full weight of sin. He, he knows it. He, he bore it. He is seated, knowing that we're faced with, with weariness, knowing that we often grow faint-hearted, knowing that sometimes it runs through our mind that maybe I should just drop out of the race. He is seated. And so if we're, we're having a problem with running with endurance, I think we need to to nail it down right here. This is our issue. We're not looking to and considering Jesus. That's the heart. We're not looking to him rightly, considering him rightly. If we're wearied, if our intensity is waning, if we're tempted to drop out of the race, we're not looking rightly, considering rightly this Christ. And the beauty of verses 2 and 3 is that the personal work of Jesus is enough for that too. That sin of even not looking to him rightly, not considering him rightly, he bore that too. He took that too and he sat down. So look again. Consider him again. 
Keep on looking. Keep on considering. See, those who run with endurance are those who keep looking and keep considering that they know Jesus alone is enough to make it through this race. I'm looking to him. We're in a race that demands endurance, probably more than we know. But we have a founder and a pioneer, a perfecter of the faith who provides all that we need every step of the way, every time, and we're to look to him to run with endurance. Now, one of the means that our Lord has given to us to continue in the faith, to be maintained in the faith, to encourage one another in the faith, is called the Lord's Supper. He told his followers to take this meal in remembrance of him, of who he is and of what he's accomplished, so that we would look back upon his work and remember that he was crucified, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed, that we might have forgiveness, that we might have eternal life, so that we would remember that now in the present, while we're in the middle of the race, that by our faith in him, we're now connected to him. So somehow he is seated at the right hand of God and we're seated along with him. And that we're going to one day be there with him. But we're also meant to take this meal in a, in a way to look forward. Pronouncing and remembering the Lord's death until he returns. Because he ran across enemy territory. But he came back for us and he's going to come back once more. And so if you are a believer, we want you to, in great joy and faith, take this meal. Tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice, and be reminded of these things. We want you to know what Jesus has done, what he's doing, and what he will do. If you're not a believer, we would say, we've said this word faith over and over again, we want you to have faith. We want you to believe. Trust in the Lord Jesus. If you don't know what that looks like, you don't know what that means, but you want to, please find another believer, find a pastor we'd love to share with you, but don't take this meal. This is a sacred family meal for believers. We'd encourage you instead, take Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather as your family, around your word, I pray that you would encourage our hearts. Some are weary, some are faint-hearted, some are thinking about dropping out. God, meet us in the middle of that and lift up our gaze that we might look to you and consider you. Father, some of this stuff hasn't made any sense to some because they don't know who you are, and I pray that you would open their eyes in the hearing of your gospel comes light to blindness. And we pray that that would happen now. But God, we're thankful for your word. And we pray that as we continue to look to it, that it would point us to you. That as we open up your word, it would open us up to your greatness and glory. And that by that, we would keep running with endurance. God, help us. It's in Christ's name.